Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom with me, Father Yuri, and Father Jeffrey. And we, I, I think this episode will be actually released in the new year, Father Jeffrey. So, Happy New Year to everybody. Oh, indeed. Blessings mm. on uh, 2021 that will be uh, maybe m- more full of delights than the previous year. Yes, hopefully. Uh, so to, in today's episode, we're looking at, we're continuing our series on the lamp lighting psalms. That's Psalm 140, 141, 129, and 116, all in a row, kind of right in the middle of Vespers or so. And uh, today's uh, topic is the narrative trajectory of the lamp lighting psalms. So in other words, what is the narrative or dramatic purpose and reason to be doing these psalms? What does it actually add to the character of the service? And Father Jeffrey, a while back, this topic has come up a couple of times in which one of my big conceptions before we started recording this podcast, one of my big uh, conceptions of Vespers was as a very clear-cut, almost like Hollywood narrative, right? So you have kind of Psalm 103 is the creation. And then you have, um, and then you move through the, the peace, right? The, the litany of peace. And then you get to the lamplighting Psalms, which start with, Lord, I call to you, hear me, hear me, O Lord, this call of almost despair or of supplication. And in my kind of view of Vespers, I always thought of that as, well, this is the narrative moment where we're supposed to think about the fall, right? Adam and Eve falling from paradise and our need to kind of turn back towards God. Um, And then you sort of blew that out of the water a little bit. Do you want to maybe talk about that again? Yeah, certainly. I mean, that is one of the sort of stories that's told these days. You pick up different commentaries on Vespers and and people will make that kind of association. In fact, the the moment of the fall is variously located. I mean, certainly um, the plaintive aspect of these Psalms, you know, comes to mind. But of course, even just when you're serving, you know, uh, a a vigil service and the the doors of the iconostasis of the holy doors are, are open at the beginning and the great sensing takes place with the light and so forth. And then those doors are slammed shut and uh, the priest comes out, you know, without his felonian on, without his you know outer vestment and, and just sort of stands quietly, meekly in front of those doors to read the, the prayers of light. That's, that's conceived as Adam praying outside the doors of paradise and, and so forth. So there's various dramatic actions that are associated with that scheme, um, you know, various moments in, in the kind of wording of, of the Psalms and, and prayers and so forth that, that are also kind of brought forth to as evidence f- for it. The, the difficulty, you know, with that, I think at the time we talked about it before, I said, you know, it, 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 if it does no harm, you know, there's, there's really no, no problem with, you know, these kinds of conceptions. Uh, for one thing, it's a very late development. It's only from the last couple of centuries that we see this, this commentary. But the real danger, of course, is that it kind of, it completely 
removes from us the story. So today we're talking about the narrative trajectory of, of these lamplighting or evening psalms. And I hope we'll be able to see that they connect, you know, to everyone. And it's not just simply a drama that's unfolding in front of us where we sort of think, okay, well, this is just meant to remind us of all that's happened, creation and fall and redemption. And, you know, because we belong to that community of the redeemed, in some ways, this none of this actually pertains, you know, to us as such, you know, so it's sort of removed from us in this kind of um, audience and play acting, you know, kind of distance, right? Uh, a drama that doesn't really involve us. It just involves the kind of actors, you know, on the stage, which of course is the furthest, you know, thing from the truth here. So if we actually, you know, kind of delve more closely into, you know, the words here, I think we'll see that they, they do actually really apply to worshipers today. Um, everything from the beginning of the service assumes a community gathered who have already been redeemed. So we're starting at that point, not at the point of let's, you know, kind of reenact moments from salvation history as such. I'll give you an analogy. It's a bit like Mm -hmm. saying, um, you know, the Lord's prayer, you know, which, you know, includes things like, you know, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from, from evil. Oh, well, temptation, that's Eden and, and deliver us from, from evil. That means about our redemption in Christ. So therefore praying the Lord's prayer has, is just a kind of, you know, rehearsal of something that happened in the past, which of course I don't think is the experience of most Christians praying the Lord's prayer. They see that as an immediate, applicable, you know, set of of prayers. In fact, it's been said that every line in the Lord's Prayer kind of reflects a different kind of movement or position or stance of prayer from praise and thanksgiving through petition for for need to, you know, this kind of reflection of temptation and deliverance and, and so forth. I mean, all of the aspects of our worship are encapsulated in that short prayer. It's why the Lord said, pray like this, you know, but, you know, we don't see that as a, a kind of dramatic script at a distance from us. It's very much what we live in our daily life. And I think that is the case with Vespers, as well as all of the other liturgy of the hours, and, you know, as well as the Eucharistic liturgies in the church. So that's that's the danger, the, the harm I would potentially see in this kind of overly illustrative symbolism of, you know, kind of dramatic action. I, I hope in our discussion in the next few minutes, we can show for people that actually this works now, you know, as we are today, the community of faith gathered here in this service, these apply to us, not to some kind of dramatic rehearsal of of somebody else's experience, even if it is, even if it leaves effects for us, right? It it, it is actually our ongoing experience. Mm-hmm. So we've talked at length in other episodes about the great U shape of this great kind of a uh, this storytelling device or, or the, this poetic device of the great U shape, which is um, the orientation, disorientation, reorientation, the kind of step one being able to see the world. Um, everything is great. Everything is grand. But then you descend into that darker place, uh, that uh, disorientation place. That's uh, Jonah going down into the whale, so to speak. Um uh, or even you know Christ uh, being crucified and then and then being placed in the grave and then the the um, the reorientation the, the coming back up the resurrection Jonah being spit out onto the onto the land and I'm wondering if we are seeing this kind of shape happening not only within the Psalms of this text which we talked about um, a couple of episodes ago but actually in the structure of Vespers in that 
we begin with, uh, we are oriented by Psalm 103, and we're oriented by the um, Litany of Peace, and then we enter into this these psalms, which seem to really try and um, uh, make our minds focus on maybe the the darker aspects of of life. D- am I is am I onto something there, or am I off base? No, that's that's precisely right. And um, I, I guess the the danger of of making it illustrative symbolism of some sort of dramatic action of the past is to assume there's only one you, <laughs> right? And that you is the great you of the sweep of human existence. You know, from a creation in some degree of perfection. Uh, we don't overly emphasize that in the. Christianese, but I mean, certainly there's some sense in which, you know, there is an Eden from which human beings fall and then are redeemed, you know, in Christ. And then if, if we assume that, okay, that is the only U-shape story that exists, well, then, you know, we're, we're done, you know. And I, the danger, of course, of that is what do we do with precisely what you just said, you know, the complexity, the darker side, the the struggle of our ongoing existence, you know, because I, I don't think very many Christians experience their life at the kind of far end of that you, right, that we are reoriented, we've been baptized and chrismated, we receive the Eucharist, we're in the community of faith, we're Orthodox Christians, you know, we have some sense of of the sweep of human history and the the directionality of it, the, where the goal is and what Christ is going to do when he returns. You know, all of that does not mean a life without struggle, a life without uh, difficulty, a life without temptation, a life without, you know, trying to discern the community of the righteous from, you know, the community of the unrighteous. And that's a, that's a kind of daily discernment that, that we go through. And we have to remember that all of these texts that we have here are actually written, you know, by and about people who were themselves already members of that community of faith. So, you know, when, when the King David, as the kind of paradigmatic psalmist, you know, writes about, you know, the, the kinds of struggles that he had, he, he didn't start, you know, as an unredeemed you know, person and then move towards redemption as part of that. He was already a member of the covenant community of faith. He was part of God's family. Um, but he admits to the struggles of that. Or you mentioned the prophet Jonah. You know, he doesn't, you know, it's not a question of him being outside and then inside by the end. He, he starts as, as a believer. Um, but with struggles, you know, and doubts and, uh, difficulty following, you know, God's plan for him and for, for the people that he's meant to be, uh, ministering to as part of his uh, vocation. So all of these things, you know, and if we think even about the, the kind of, fundamental story of the scriptures, which is the story of Israel. If you notice, you know, when the, when Israel is led out of captivity in Egypt by, by Moses, you know, led by, by God and his Holy Spirit, um, you know, the, the, the moments in, in that journey, you know, we have them crossing through the waters of the, the Red Sea, which is kind of, you know, as for St. Paul, anyway, this is the, the prototype of Christian baptism, right? So, that is the movement of redemption into a covenant community that will be given the law, right? Very shortly after in the book of Exodus, we read about the, you know, the, the, the tablets of the law, the covenant, you know, with Moses on Mount Sinai being, being made and so forth. So that covenant is formed and sealed. But then what happens, right? It's the wilderness. It's the wilderness, the struggle, the, isolation, the wondering, you know, was it not better before we'd gone through any of this? So it's all post-redemption. 
post-redemption, but prior to fulfillment, right? This is before you get to the promised land. And we, all of us as Christians live between redemption, you know, through our baptism, our chrismation, being members of a community where we, we, we share the banquet of the Lord and, and our, the fulfillment of that, right? So between, you know, the Red Sea and the promised land. And that's where every one of us lives our, our Christian life in some kind of degree of, of struggle as we come together as a community, as we disperse and we regather and so forth. And that's what the kind of existential or, you know, kind of, you know, uh, really true to life um, aspect of these services is all about. You know, it's what it, it should resonate with us as we are, not as, you know, let's just kind of rehearse or retell the story of what went on long ago. But by the way, you should always be feeling, you know, like the psalmist does at the end, which is, isn't it great? Praise the Lord, you know? Uh, no, we're, we're allowed to feel all of these emotions and all of, and all these experiences can be real to us as well. But let us indeed follow that ongoing trajectory. So you said about the U-shape. Well, the U-shape exists in a million different ways in our lives. It's in micro experiences with people. It's with the day to day, you know, Christian life that we live, it's year to year, it's, you know, in all of the different spheres of our life, family and work and, and school and church. Uh, and, and to be aware of that is one of the most important things. And so mm -hmm. what the, the, the psalmist does is kind of puts us in touch with, with the kind of fundamental experience of being a human being, but staying faithful, right? Not certain, but faithful. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. Yeah, this this U shape. I think it would be helpful to to say out loud right now that it doesn't only exist in terms of biblical poetry or or literature. It exists everywhere in in everything you watch, like from the Marvel superhero movies to Star Wars to 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 everything. It's 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 something I think that's built built in deep in our psychology. Um, when you think of, say, the Lord of the Rings, where you, where um, both in the in, in J.R. Tolkien's novel, but also in Peter Jackson's movie, they spend quite a bit of time at the beginning orienting you in the Shire, right? Mm -hmm. Giving you, giving you the frame in which kind of goodness exists and all this kind of stuff, and then it disorients you from there. Um, this even actually happens in. Um, this is one of the. Uh, this is one of the things that actually is helpful to know if you're going to write comedy sketches, because one of the things that you want to do in a, in a comedy sketch, if you watch kind of classic um, Saturday night live or, or any kind of uh, comedy sketches, you will begin the sketch with a, a quote unquote normal, 
right? Mm-hmm. You, you want to set up the normal. You want to give the framework. You want to orient it. And then you throw in the curveball after that. And that's where the comedy starts coming in. I think that there's something deep in our psychology that, that really likes this up and down. Yeah, right. well, I mean, it's real. It, it's, it is our fundamental human experience and it is every story in that way. And, and you, you mentioned about, you know, that setting up of the, the, what seems normal or, um, you know, just kind of th- that orientation stage where everything seems to be okay. But actually we mentioned before, this is a very naive state, you know, mm. When the hobbits are in the Shire at the beginning, there is already evil lurking there that they were not aware of, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because clearly by the time when they return at the end, and I hope this isn't a spoiler for too many people, but, you know, they, they need to scour the Shire because, of course, many of their fellow, you know, uh, you know, residents of the Shire have actually, you know, have this proclivity towards manipulation and evil and oppression and so forth. And, and so th- that there was a very naive impression at the beginning of, you know, everything is fine. You know, in Eden, the serpent was already there before it started to speak. Right. So uh, what the, the disorientation, although it's painful, it's, it's a struggle. It's, uh, it's a reversal in, in comedy, as you say, it kind of leads to all kinds of, um, you know, situations that, 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 that almost leave, leave us laughing nervously because we recognize how real they are. I mean, that's the, the nature of really powerful comedy is it can, it punctures our, our naivete, right? By, by kind of bringing situations that lurk you know, behind into the, into the forefront. And, but all of that is actually a kind of cathartic experience, right? Because it, it leads to uh, a new place that is not the naive one of the beginning, but a new insight, new understanding. And, uh, and, and ultimately that is why we struggle. That is why the Eagles don't just simply pick up the hobbits in the Shire and take them to Mordor. You know, it, the journey matters, right? The, the whole process is something that is what leads to education and enlightenment and growth. And we need to embrace that. And that's why our services, I think, are honest about it by, by kind of putting these psalms and texts in front of us and allowing us to experience them over and over again, because it's an invitation into that kind of process of, of, of journeying towards you know, growth and understanding and insight and a new place of, or uh, of reorientation where it's no longer the naive, you know, the, the praise that comes at the end is so much stronger for not being naive, for not being unaware of the evil that lurks in every human heart and around every corner and so forth about the traps that have been laid and, and so forth. It's, it's, it's so much stronger and more powerful, uh, an expression of faith. And that's, that's what is being asked of us, you know? Um, and, you know, hence the way that the services do encapsulate both moments of high praise and, you know, just sheer joy and thanksgiving in God, but also these, these moments of, of just genuinely accepting that to be human is to be somebody in process. It's to be somebody who needs to struggle in order to grow, who needs to, to demonstrate faithfulness through times of great uncertainty and anxiety and you know th- there's no better record in human history of, of that than the psalms yeah th- this is a really important point that you that the church the, the the service of vespers puts these things in this order and we come to the service differently every single 
time we come to Vespers, right? We're, we're bringing in perhaps different experiences of that week or of that day. And our experience of the same Vesper service will actually can be radically different week to week. And oh, it I should think, be. I would I don't say just right. it can. It, it should be because, you know, we are different. You know, it's like that was that ancient Greek proverb that you can't step into the same river twice, right? Not mm-hmm. only because the river keeps flowing, but because you have changed, right? You are not the same person who stepped in there a moment ago. And so, yeah, we were stepping again and again to a river that is ever flowing, but we are different every yeah. time. So. Yeah, and I think what one thing that's happening kind of in that narrative trajectory framework that we're working with in this episode right now is that um, we are asked, I think, to really meditate on the darkness or the uh, maybe that that the disorientation aspect of our lives at this point, the service. Um, I think that's sort of what you're getting after. Am I am I getting that right? Well, yeah. I mean, what's the alternative, right? I mean, if if you had conceived of being a Christian as being at the end of that you shape pattern of human existence, right? That, you know, once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, everything will be fine, right? You are saved. Um, you are redeemed. You're part of a community that is just simply going to get together at regular intervals and celebrate that fact. Well, you, what do you end up doing if that's your conception of things? You end up suppressing all of the reality of your life, right? Well, goodness, I better not let any of my fellow Christians know that I had considerable doubt this week because something happened. You know, I know a child who who got cancer or my best friend's wife died or, you know, I, I felt a real strong temptation into a particular sin or whatever. I better not tell anybody. Or if I do, let it be very private. Like, you know, there's the sacrament of confession. And, you know, maybe if I just list a few things there, you know, this will all go away. But otherwise, I'm going to kind of put on my pious self and I will belong to this community and pretend like, you know, I'm just giving thanks to God. And, and when I hear all these words, it's, that's just the past. That's just something that happened to other people before Jesus came. Um, well, that's an extremely dangerous place to live as, as, a, as a faithful member of God's community, as his, his body. Because it's so untrue to reality. And that sort of ongoing, you know, kind of split personality, there's the real self that lives in the world, but this kind of mask that you wear in church where you're suppressing all of these real experiences is eventually going to lead to some kind of mental breakdown, um, some sort of, you know, either complete nervous breakdown or a loss of faith or you know, drifting away from the church because you cannot sustain that level of, of fantasy really in, in the spiritual life. So this, these moments in the service are meant to connect with us and say, Oh my goodness, the psalmist felt like this. This describes how I felt this past week or this past day or what, whatever the, the story is that we're bringing at that point. And it might, you know, it might not be the entire psalm. It may not be much more than one or two words or one verse of a psalm. There'll be something that connects. You can make a kind of connection with those words and then follow the trajectory of that psalm, you know, because they will lead through that process of 
descent and ascent and a return to all the things we talked about when we looked closely at these psalms before. You know, it starts in isolation, kind of individual experience leads us into the community. It starts with, you know, a struggle to discern between right and wrong, between the righteous community and the unrighteous community leads us into communion again with those who are the faithful. Uh, it goes from, you know, maybe a small amount of praise from one small part of the world to a kind of universal acclamation of God's sovereignty and grace for the whole world. So all of these moves are the moves we need to make alongside the story as it's given to us, but it only works if we've connected with it. It actually only works if we also have struggled. Do you see? If, if we just simply arrive at church having suppressed all of our, of our real experience and, and feelings, then it actually, you know, at the best will be left in that naive position at the beginning, you know, and we won't actually have journeyed or become enlightened or grown through this experience. But at its worst, it's simply a fantasy that will eventually fade. And, you know, as we know, after several years, after a lifetime, people will lose their faith. And I would argue that very often it's because they haven't actually, you know, made that experiential connection with everything that's offered in our worship, in our prayer. There is one of the key themes in the Christian uh, uh, tradition is this idea of uh, bringing light to the darkness. So when while we're recording this, we are currently in Advent, the Nativity Fast. And as we get closer to the Feast of the Nativity, there, there's a lot of this uh, poetic language about Christ coming as the the, the little light in in the darkness, um, and one of the one of the ways that we that in the spiritual tradition that we deal with this is by uh, looking at ourselves and bringing light to those aspects of us that we keep kind of deep down in in darkness, and um, I'm I'm sort of uh, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised and and when I'm first really contemplating this right now that you have the lamplighting psalms which are bringing us down into that um disorientation place like they're 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 asking us to come face to face with those aspects of us that we like to you know hold deep down and and not bring to light and it's actually at that moment that we are lighting in theory that we are lighting the candles that we begin actually bringing light to that those aspects of ourselves that's, you know, absolutely, you know, incredible to think about it that way, isn't it? That, um, you know, we've talked about the struggle is what brings enlightenment, right? It's not so simply, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel that brings enlightenment. Uh, the tunnel itself can be illumined and should be illumined. And so our very activity of doing this, of coming into this kind of deep, experiential connection with the struggles that the Psalms, you know, point us at is a process of shining light in those dark places. That's, it's an image I've used with people in confession before that, you know, what, what, what are you doing when you come to confession? What you want to do is open up more and more of your life to the light of God, because why wouldn't you want his love and his grace and his forgiveness to permeate every aspect of your being? Right. So each time you come to confession, it's, a, it's like opening up another chink in your armor that you've built up, uh, which is, you know, not unlike the masks I was talking about before. You know, you suppress feelings, you suppress experiences, and you put up a mask of piety and so forth. Well, those masks have to be, you know, cast aside, which is what is happening here. And we, we stop pretending 
to be what we aren't. And we allow that light to shine. And as we're doing that, you know, you go around the church and you light lamps and you, you know, you put uh, you know, fire to the tapers that had already been placed into the commemoration um, spots in front of icons and so forth. So the light is is increasing and increasing and increasing the more we kind of associate ourselves with the real struggle of being a faithful Christian, of being a faithful member of God's covenant community. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time.